Well, good morning. My name is Jeff, and uh, we're going to jump right into uh, the story of the Tower of Babel. Um, one of those that I think uh, most everybody's heard. It's, it shows up in uh, ancient art and everything else. There's, uh, it's been around and talked about uh, amongst civilizations for a lot of years. But just to put it in kind of context of where we've been as we've been studying this story of Genesis, a quick recap is this idea that that God has created the whole world, but specifically man. And as we take a look at this story of Genesis, it's this idea that God makes man, God desires a relationship with man, and we see his efforts to that that, um, end. And then we get to see man's response to that, that how humanity responds to this God who not only made us, but desires a relationship with us. What does man do in response to that? And so if you just do the quick recap, you've got Adam and Eve, you've got Cain and Abel, and we go through those stories and all the way up to the flood that we just talked about. And then now we're coming into this story of the, the Tower of Babel. So that's the context and where this sits. And I don't know about you, but it, it, ever since I was a kid, whenever I would hear the story of the Tower of Babel, it almost felt like to me like God was worried, like God was a little bit um, nervous about what was happening on earth, and he had to do something to kind of intervene. So I'm going to read it one more time, just so that you can see what I see in this process. The whole earth had one language and the same words, and as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And then the Lord comes in and the Lord came down to see the city and the tower, which the children of men had built. And the Lord said, behold, they are one people and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. Nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of the earth and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. So I grew up with one of my grandparents living with me as he got older, he moved in with us, his wife had passed away, my grandmother. And so I was right in my teenage years and and my grandpa Strong literally lived in our house with us. And so he became almost uh, uh, like a... Well, like a grandpa to me, um, it was the concept that he was there around all the time, playing with us, doing different things with us. He had a great sense of humor, but we would play these uh, dominoes where, you know, the little tiles that most of the time you see and you stack them up and knock them over. Well, we would play dominoes and we'd have our dominoes and we would draw our hands out and um, you each get seven dominoes and you play against each other. And one of the things that my grandfather would do is whenever he got a really bad hand of dominoes, he was so good at it that he could look at the dominoes, he could tell right away that he probably wasn't going to win. 
And so what he would do from time to time is we would play on this card table. It's a folding table where the the little thin metal legs would fold up underneath. We would pull that table out, set up our dominoes and start playing. And anytime he had a bad hand, he would just bump the table leg with his leg. The whole table would shake. All the dominoes would fall over. We could see each other's dominoes and he would go, oh, we got to start over. And we would shuffle. This is my grandpa, and we would laugh at him unless we had a really great hand, and we would get so mad at him, we would go, Grandpa, I was going to win that round. And this is almost the picture here, right? Is that we look at it, and we almost think God is looking at it going, oh, it's a bad hand, it's going a wrong direction. I didn't see that coming, and so he bumps the table so that we have to start all over again and reset the table. That's the concept that too many of us have of God as if he's some kind of cosmic killjoy that upsets the game as we're about to win. This is craziness. But that is not what's happening here. And that picture, though, is that sometimes we read this and we think that's what's happening. God, when he creates man, he creates them with free will. We have the ability to make choices along the way in our life. But there's this thing where God retains his ability to intervene. God retains his his ability to step into our lives. And when it's going a direction that by his wisdom and his sovereign nature chooses, he intervenes. But note that as you look at scripture, always it is for our good. Always when God intervenes in our life, it is for our good. It's as if God sitting there playing dominoes can see that my hand is not good and he bumps the table for my benefit. That's the concept that we find here in um, Genesis 11. The first part that starts off is that this line that shows up multiple times, and I don't know if you caught it, but in verse three, they said to one another, come, let us make bricks. And then in verse four, come, let us build for ourselves a city. And then the Lord came down. And then in verse seven, the Lord says, come, let us go down. This come, let us is a, is a repeated phrase. And the first time it's used is just a couple of chapters earlier. I don't know if you remember it, but it's where God stops and says, Let us make man in our image. So you get this great contrast where man then rises up and says, we've been made in the image of God. Come, let us make something. And here's the contrast. And it's the beginning of the irony in this passage is the contrast is God stops and makes the entire world, the entire universe. He makes mankind. And then man stops and says, come, let us make bricks. It's like those two are not even close to the same. I don't know. You know, some people may be, you know, like a brick. But the bottom line is, is that you're looking at it. God stops and says, let us make man. And man stops and says, let us make bricks. This is the concept that is we we begin this with is this contrast of what you could refer to the lettuce wars. Now. There's three things that happen here in verse four is that I'm going to lay them out really quick. In verse four, it says, then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. There's three things that happen in this mix. And those three things are the things we're going to take a look at that that kind of illustrate what we're talking about right here. The first one is that they say, let us um, build ourselves a city 
and a tower with its top in the heavens. So the first one we're going to look at is the top in the heavens. The next one is, let us make a name for ourselves. And the last one, lest we be dispersed. Those three things. To the heavens, they want to make a name for themselves, and they don't want to be dispersed. Those three things lay out very clearly in chapter 4 of what mankind's goal is and what they're doing. So one by one, we're going to take a look at this. This first one of, of building a tower to the heavens. Now, where the plain of Shinar is, is, is basically where Babylon was, was built then and continued to grow. And over time, the, the, the great city of Babylon and the province of Babylon was right in that area. So this is where the, the, all of the people, they came to settle there, they began to build. And to this day, archaeologists are still discovering these kinds of towers that were built. They're a bit like pyramids and they're what they refer to as ziggurats and ziggurats were built as almost like a spiritual portal. There was the concept that man at that time thought that if we could build this thing, they would set up on top a little place where the gods might come down to visit man so that they could tap into the powers of the heavens. That's what was happening historically throughout, not just this time, but all throughout the rest of the time in the Middle East was the building of such towers like this. We don't know for sure that this was a ziggurat or whether this was a tower. It doesn't say for sure, but the principle of the time and the people at that time were building these, these, these ziggurats with the idea that they would go up and that from somehow there, they could get the power of the heavens down into man. And that's the concept when it says they were building to the heavens, it doesn't say they were building to God. It's a remarkable just omission that it doesn't say that they're reaching out so they can reach God. It's they're reaching out to reach the heavens. What a difference it would be if they were reaching out to God. But that wasn't their intention. It was the intention to reach out to the heavens. And when you understand what that means in the Middle East, this was a concept of trying to get the power from God without having to actually deal with God. And this is the concept. And and sometimes we do that same thing. In fact, if you literally look at back to the Garden of Eden, when the serpent is, is tempting Adam and Eve, he says about the fruit that if you eat it, you will be like God. You can have some of the powers of God without actually having to interact with God. Take this fruit and you could be like God. This tower is that concept to the heavens is to try to get some of that power down. You might remember that in uh, the Old Testament, in uh, 1 Samuel, there's the story of the time when uh, the Philistines conquer or win a particular battle with the Israelites and they capture the Ark of the Covenant. And when they capture the Ark of the Covenant, they take it because they think with it, they will get some of the power of God with them, with that. And it will make them stronger and mightier. After a little bit of time, they start breaking out with tumors or hemorrhoids, as some of the translations refer to, and they are overrun with mice. They start having these plagues that break out on them, so they decide to give the Ark of the Covenant back because the power of God does not come um, um, apparently with the ark that way. So as they send it back, they make with it some golden hemorrhoids and some golden mice and they put it in the ark and they just give it back to Israel. You can read that story later at your own time. Um, but that's the concept that it's not unusual for us to reach out for the power of God without actually wanting a relationship with God. 
And that's what's happening here. The second one, this idea that we would make a name for ourselves. And again, then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves. This idea of just projecting ourselves and and literally in today's culture, um, it's the concept that we have media influencers and people that will build a platform to actually elevate themselves, this starts to sound a little bit like the Tower of Babel, that we would be able to, to brand ourselves and put ourselves out there. And then this is what they are doing. They are literally trying to make a mark for themselves. They're trying to glorify their own life, their own name. And that's their goal at this point. And this too, I find we still do to this day. The idea that what we're doing so many times is trying to project ourselves and put ourselves out there that we tell stories about ourselves that make us look good. So I'm going to tell you one about me that doesn't make me look good. Just recently, I was playing with some of my grandkids and um, we had a bunch of like Django kind of blocks and I was building a tower, not to the heavens. I was building it to God, but I was building this tower. And as I'm building this tower, trying to get it higher and higher, one of my grandsons has a rubber band gun and he shoots my tower and he knocks it down. I mean, I don't know who's raising these kids, but clearly there's something wrong in the mix of this. So I grab the rubber band and I take the rubber band and I start using it to bind together my sticks so that I can hold together more pieces of wood so I can build a taller tower. And I start going. He comes back for his rubber band and I start kind of slamming the table wherever he puts his hand as if I'm going to hit him. Well, at one point his hand comes out and I hit his hand. He starts screaming, he starts crying, and then he runs and hides behind the couch. Grandpa, grandpa's mean to me. Grandpa hurt me. Grandpa hit me. And I'm sitting there like, he was trying to knock down my tower. Do I get no credit for that? My wife and my daughter started to intervene because he was crying. And in the process, they heard what he said and they turned to me and they said, did you hit him? Oh, you got to be kidding me. He started it. He shot down the tower. What is going on? This whole thing is backwards and I barely hit him. It wasn't anything. And I am literally a grown man defending my name, trying to protect my honor against this little boy. There's something wrong with us in that regard that we constantly put ourselves out there. Now that's a mild story compared to the things I do in a day. The way I I tell a story so it benefits me, the way I put other people down so it makes me look better, the way I do all kinds of things so that I might get the glory. All the time I am constantly in my flesh with my pride trying to make a name for myself. This one should trouble us all because we know it. And when it says they were trying to make a name for themselves, we should recognize that and say, yeah, I've been there. I've been there recently and I do just that. The third one, go in uh, uh, this concept, lest we be dispersed. The last part of verse four, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. The concept with this, if you've got your Bibles and if they're open, turn to to, uh, chapter nine. This is right after the flood and verse nine, one, and God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. (laughs) Verse seven, 
And you be fruitful and multiply and team on the earth and multiply in it. Go spread out is the very thing God just said to them. I want you to go spread out, go fill the earth. And what do they say? Let's build this tower into the heavens so we can get some of the power of God. Let's build a name for ourselves and let's do this lest we be dispersed and actually spread out. Do you get the pattern that's what's happening in this story is these three things are all in the face of God. This is man that in, when we look at the context here, God makes man, God desires a relationship with man and man stops and stiff arms God and says, I don't really want anything to do with you. I want some of the power you have. I want to make a name for myself and no, I'm not going to do what you've asked. I am not going to obey. That's what's happening in this story. That's that moment that when we look at all three of these, we stop and say to God, no, we'll stay right here. Thank you. We have a better plan. We know better. The God of the universe always knows better. And when he intervenes, it's on our behalf. It's for our good. Where they are heading is a destructive life that is going to get stuck in the flesh that that destroys. The wages of sin is death. That if you put your hand out to God and say, God, I won't obey you, the what comes from that is death. It's destruction. We've already seen that from the garden in Cain and the flood. And here they are again, pulling away from God and God intervenes and says, no, I don't want this to happen. And God himself intervenes. He intervenes with a little bit of irony and, and sarcasm. And verse five, And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of men had built. I love this verse because it just tells me that I don't know that God was smirking. Far more likely God is is more holy than I am and more gracious, more compassionate and caring. So he probably was was sad that he had to do it this way. But I think it's, it's humorous in this regard. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower, which the children of man had built. The, the, remember the tower that's reaching up into the heavens. So imagine God's sitting up there on a cloud. He's just hanging out on the cloud. And all of a sudden this tower starts building up through the clouds and here's they've, they've reached heaven. They've reached God. That's not at all what happened. Is it? This is not, God's like, if you're building a tower to the heavens, I don't have to go anywhere. I'll be able to see it here, right? You built all the way to me. But in fact, I can't quite see it from here. If I'm going to see it, I'm going to have to come down to you. That's how small your tower is. Now, it's not that God couldn't see it. It's that God could see it. And he's putting it in perspective that you're not up here with me. You haven't built a tower to the heavens. And if I'm going to see it, I'm going to have to come down to see how great this tower is by coming down to you. And then he puts in this last line. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower, which the children of men had built. He did even stop and say that man had built. He stops and he goes, the children had built. This concept of what God is doing is he's reminding them who they are and he puts them into this, this place. This is similar to what happens when you're building with, with kids or grandkids and you're doing Lego towers, that kind of a thing. Your kid builds a Lego tower and you look at it and go, whoa, that is so tall. No, that's not that tall. You're going to put it in a box and stick it back under the bed and it's same height. It's going to fit under the bed. It's not that tall. Or they build cardboard forts and we're going, that's an awesome fort. Nobody's going to get in there (laughs) until you just jump on the whole thing and smash it and the kids entirely. (laughs) That's how grandpas play. 
Then you have to defend yourself later on to your, etc. You get the point. God is not impressed by their tower. He's not impressed by what they're doing. But what, the way he responds is he puts it back in contrast and says, look, this is different than this. And then what he does next is he reverses each of those three things to the heavens and name for themselves unless they be dispersed. Look at what happens in verse eight. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth and they left off building the city. We're going to build this tower up to the heavens. They left it off. They didn't finish it. And therefore its name, verse nine, was called Babel because the Lord confused the language of all the earth. So then what happens? We're going to make a name for themselves. And today we're talking about just simply, we can say the word Babel and know that's the name they got for themselves out of this entire effort. It's confusion that they were confused. And, and what was the last one? Lest we be dispersed. And what does God do? He disperses them. This God is capable of far more than we could ever wish or dream. And he desires at times to have a relationship with you. He desires at all times to have a relationship with you. And he's willing to intervene on your behalf for your good to interrupt the things that you might be doing that are destructive, that have a negative outcome for your life. And he intervenes. But when he does, we think he's some kind of cosmic killjoy and is, it just is out for us. He doesn't like us. Now that shows up again and again that God intervenes in this level. Adam and Eve, they go into the garden in one place God says not to go. And God shows up and intervenes and saves them there, gives them a covering, gives them a new opportunity. And then Cain, Cain is about to, he's, he's got sin crouching at the door. And remember that whole story of how God intervenes in the life of Cain. And then the point where the whole face of the earth was wicked everywhere and God chooses to destroy, but he also chooses to bring a promise of, of reconciliation and promise of salvation with the ark that God intervenes again. And in this story, we have God intervening yet once more. That story continues. That pattern continues that God is not an angry, spiteful cosmic killjoy. He actually is a God who loves us and wants the best for us. That means he will intervene for our good. And he knows better than we do what that good is. But there's a couple of other thoughts here that I want to pull out. Um, one of them is that this idea that there's something else that's in this story that's always sort of baffled me, that's always made me scratch my head a little bit. It's like, what's up with this line when it stops and says um, in verse 6, and the Lord said, behold, they are one people. They all have one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. What does that mean? That, that it's, it's like man is getting stronger, is getting greater, is, getting, is able to do something fantastic. And God stops and says, well, we got better intervene on that. Better stop that. Better make sure that doesn't happen. That that question in this text is, is kind of strange. That nothing they propose to do will be impossible. 
Now, I want you to know that, that typically in my mind, I put them in the Middle East. I think of them as being almost prehistoric, not quite, but I think they're a bunch of shepherds. They've got sheep. They're just wandering around the desert. They live in tents. These are not very smart people in my mind. They're just barely alive. They're just trying to figure things out. And that is not the case. They actually are doing something that's quite brilliant. And along the way, it's enough that God stops and intervenes. We've built some tall, some tall towers. God hasn't intervened on that regard. So it's not about the height of the tower. It's something else that was going on in the middle of this. So MIT, uh, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, some of the smartest people in America work there, teach there, that type of thing. They were looking at this Tower of Babel story and they decided to take a look at it and study it. And in the process, they took um, sun-dried bricks and they simply put them under a, a tester that would test the pressure of the brick and its ability to hold uh, an architectural form of any kind. They tested a basic sun-dried brick and they found out that it can hold 4,000 pounds per square inch. That means that if you build it roughly in a pyramid shape, you could build a pyramid of bricks approximately 1,500 feet high. That's about a quarter mile high. That's kind of impressive. That's a lot of bricks. But when they baked it, and you'll see that that's one of the things they say, come let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. They put them in a fire and wood fired them so that the bricks would become stronger. We don't even think about that kind of a thing. But MIT went and tested basically kiln fired bricks. And what they found that it went from 4,000 PSI to 20,000 PSI and actually made it so much stronger that you could build a a pyramid 10,500 feet high, almost two miles high out of bricks. They figured something out back then. There was some giftedness, architectural design, engineering design that they had at this point that said they knew what they were doing in the process. Um, In the process of studying this passage, I came across a story of a blogger in Portland who who, uh, is sitting, writing his blog in a coffee shop in Portland. And this old guy comes into the coffee shop. He sits down at a table. He's got a little croissant and some coffee. And uh, he's right in the eye shot of the blogger. And the blogger's trying to pay attention. But the guy stops and says to the blogger, he says, hey, uh, I see you're using a Macintosh computer, a Mac. Why are you using a Mac? And he's like, well, I like it. I think it helps me be creative. And he goes, the old guy says, no, I find it's just the opposite. And he's like, no way. Everybody knows Macs are more creative than PCs. And he thinks to himself, I don't even want this conversation with this guy. I don't want to get into this debate about Macs or PCs or which one's better. And the guy stops and says, well, with a PC, it's designed to code. So you can just get on it really quick and start coding and you can create anything. Whereas your creativity usually has to be within a software platform that allows you to create in that platform. And he's like, well, whatever, what are you talking about? And he says, well, I'm a, I'm a coder. And in fact, I, I made like the first computer and then bloggers like, yeah, whatever. And he says, come over here. So he comes over and he says, what's your name? Cause he's just going to set this guy down right away. And he says, actually, not only did I make the first computer, do you know the first image ever on digital image on computers was a picture of my three month old son. You got to see it. Type in the name and he gives him his name, Russell Kirsch. He types in Russell Kirsch and it pops up on Wikipedia that this guy and his wife were the ones that invented the computer. And there's a picture of his three month old son, the very first digital image ever. 
And then this, this Russell Kurz, who did all of this, he's in his 80s now. In this process, he gives this quote. He says, nothing withheld, withheld from us that we, have been, that we have conceived to do. The blogger asked him, how did you ever come up with this? And this is his quote. I believe that there's nothing withheld from us that we have conceived to do. And he's like, that's a really great quote. Who said it? And Russell says, God. God said it. God literally said it in this passage. God stops and says, I have made you. I have made you to be wonderful. I have made you to be just spectacular. You were my best work. And in that process, I have given you incredible gifts, talents, and abilities to do things that would glorify me. God has made us that way. Every human being. And what you don't see in this story is when God reverses those other three problems of man, he does not take away their intelligence, their giftedness, their ability to do great things that would glorify him. Because the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. You were created to glorify God. That's your whole purpose to glorify him and to enjoy him. And so in this moment, God doesn't make them dumber. He doesn't make them so that they can't make anything. He doesn't trip them up so that they can't actually do what they've been created to do, which is to bring glory to God. That's the point of why we exist. And God leaves that talent, that ability, that giftedness, that part that he's put in us there. If you have your Bibles, turn to Psalms 139. Many of you already know the passage that I'm going to. But in Psalms 139, it's talking about God making us. And in verse 13 of Psalms 139, it says, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you. I glorify you. For I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works my soul knows it well. This is beautiful. That in the Tower of Babel story, God is not taking away that wonderfully made part. He leaves it in man. He just disperses man. Gives him different languages and says, go do what I've asked you to begin with, which is to fill the earth. There's another passage and um, Jesus talks about it in Matthew 5. On the, on the Sermon on the Mount, um, Matthew five sixteen, he's talking about, you are the light of the world, a city set on a hill. And he says in verse 16, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your father who is in heaven. That you and your capabilities are still able to do great and wonderful things. That when people see your good works, they will praise you, make a name for yourself that they will praise your father who is in heaven. The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That concept and what's happening here lays out um, very clearly. There's one more in 1 Corinthians 10. Um, I wanna set this one up because this one comes in with a question Oftentimes when I get a chance to do Q&A with high school students or college students, one of the questions they ask is, you know, like if you're in a relationship and you're starting to get a little friendly, a little physical, how far is too far? How far can you go before you've like really crossed the line? When does it become sin? 
And so I often will uh, stop and I'll read this verse. So the, the verse is, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And the context, it's, it's, it's a great passage. I encourage you to read the rest of 1 Corinthians 10. But that concept that is whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And so this is the idea that if it's uh, Eugenie and I, when we first met, we go driving up and, and we get up above a, of the cornfields and we just park and look out over the cornfields on a little, little bluff right there. And, and we look there and our very first date, we just parked and looked at, watched the sun go down over the cornfields. Now, how many of you think that was too far? Yeah, nobody does. Everybody's like, no, that's safe. That's not sin, that kind of a thing. So a week later, it's our week anniversary. So we go back to the cornfields to celebrate our anniversary. We park there. Sure enough, the sun's going down. And I decide this is our first anniversary. And I put my arm around Eugenie. How many of you think that's too far? Yeah, there's not very many people who think that's too far. So the next week, it's our second anniversary. We go back to watch the sunset and I go and his sun is going down. And so this time I put my arm around her and I give a peck on the cheek. How many of you think that's too far? There's one guy. Yeah. <laughs> All the rest of you, I know what you're thinking is like, dude, that's not far enough, man. Get this thing going. We're here for the story. But here's the thing. On the fourth week, this is now our month long anniversary. I come and give her a kiss on the lips. And then I stop and I reach in the glove compartment and I pull out the Bible and I go, look at what it says in 1 Corinthians 10, 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And we just start going at it and start making out and just fully just doing all kinds of things that are unspeakable here. Just as Lord, as long as this is to your glory. Now that's ridiculous, right? That's ridiculous. There's a point in time when we know it's no longer about his glory. We know it's about our flesh. We know it's about our glory. We know it's about our desires and our passions. This is the point. We read a story like this and we have to understand we know this. We know this, that we have been made wonderfully any gifts and skills and abilities that we have are because God gave it to us. And you can say, well, I worked hard. I practiced hard. I did all kinds of things. Yeah, because God gave you a mind that could do that and practice and learn and become really good. He gave you the body. He gave you the mind. He gave you the opportunities and the time and the resources. Here's the deal. This process of what happens in these moments is that God has designed each of us to glorify him. And I want to give an alternative outcome to this, this idea that we can do far more than what we do when we pursue ourselves, when we pursue our own glory, when we try to make a name for ourselves, when we try to be disobedient to God. When I was in Seattle, there was a pilot up there um, who had to retire. He was getting older. They were on a limited income, he and his wife, and he wanted to kind of help the mission in some way. God had put on his heart that he could do something for the mission. And so he decided one of the things that he could do was they would set aside money, his little bit of spendable, you know, dispensable income. He would set it aside so that once a month he could rent a plane and he would come to us, to our women's shelter and say, can I take one of the women and her kids, a single mom with kids who's come through recovery is now in our shelter. And he would say, I would love to just fly them out over the San Juan islands to see the Puget sound and how beautiful God has created his world to be. 
And he would do just that once a month. He'd rent a plane. He'd fly somebody up. He'd take them all the way over to Port Townsend, stop and get pie and ice cream, jump back into the plane and fly back. And he would let the kids take the yoke of the plane and fly it right over Seattle. Good thing to know, never safe in Seattle. There's homeless kids (laughs) flying over your head. This was incredible that what this guy chose to do with his life was he looked at it and said, I have something that God has gifted to me and I want to use it to glorify him. I want to use it to serve him. The last story today is an email that just came in. And I want to read this email to you because I think it's one of those things where you stop and see what God is doing in our, in our lives and in this church. This is edited so that you, uh, it will leave the individual anonymous. Dear Pastor Darren and Pastor Jeff, I have enjoyed worshiping at Fullerton Free. I think I speak for my entire family that we have become spiritually stronger, have learned deeply about God's word, have developed more love. Thanks be to the many shepherds at Fullerton Free. I'd perhaps give a bit of extra thanks to Pastor Darren for your leadership role at Fullerton Free. I was also thankful that you took the time to meet with my son this past year when he sought out some guidance. I have cried out of thankfulness, joy, repentance, you name it, many times at Fulton Free. I was baptized at Fulton Free with my sons, with Pastor Billy and Christina. I have sought and received prayer there. I have also prayed for Fulton Free multiple times in the past year. I try to be an obedient and cheerful giver and steward of what God has given me. And I am right now extra inspired and feel moved by God to give more to Fulton Free in these special times of need. This giving, of course, is about Christ and the mission and not about Pastor Darren. But I feel I have been moved by God's using of Pastor Darren. And I will connect, uh, contact you this week to execute a stock donation of $125,000 to be executed within one month. The purpose of this giving is to help Fullerton Free to make up for its budget shortfall. Most of this amount is out of tithing of a special bonus received. So I certainly can take no pride and sincerely... All praise goes to God. I also promise that giving to my local church will not be lacking due to this. Fulton Free is a home church to my family, and Fulton Free will certainly remain a special place to us. Is that not beautiful? Do you see what's happening to this individual as he is pursuing God, this God who makes us, desires a relationship with us. Instead of moving away, he stops and turns towards God and says, God, what can I do that would glorify you. What can I do out of what you have given me? And in that email, we hear that he has been blessed with a bonus. Now it's an incredible gift. And all of us, many of us might think, wow, that's a lot of money. If that's the tithe, man, that's awesome. I don't make that much money in in a year. That isn't the point. The point of this story is that God knows what we need here And he intervenes on our behalf and he steals $125,000 from this guy. He doesn't steal it, does he? No, instead, it's glory to God in this moment because he's willing to sacrifice and not make a name for himself, but rather to make a name for the God who knows what we need, who knows what he needs, and that God is involved in each of our lives. I don't know where you're at today. I don't know what you're facing. I don't know the challenges that you have. But I want you to know this, God. There's a last passage I want to read for you out of Zephaniah. And it's speaking of towards the end of time. 
In Zephaniah 3, verses 9 and 10, it says, For at that time, I, that's God, I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech. The languages that have gone out in every direction, God brings them back to one very similar to the day at Pentecost. For at the the time, I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones shall bring my offering. That God is doing things in each of our lives. He has made us fearfully and wonderfully made. He desires for us to have a relationship with him and that we might glorify him. Some of us may stop and say, you know what? I don't know what my purpose is. I don't know what I'm good at. Reach out to God and ask him. He'll intervene in your life. Some of you may have found yourself at a point where you have fully been projecting your own brand. You're building a name for yourself. And God might be tapping on your heart to stop and say, hey, remember me. This concept is true whether we're in business, whether we're in school, whether we're a parent, a mom. They stop and say, well, what am I doing? And that ability to glorify God where you are, whether you're a parent or a child, How many of you live in neighborhoods? Can you glorify God in your neighborhood? Use what God has given you to do great and mighty things. Don't think this story of the Tower of Babel is you shouldn't do anything great. It's just the opposite. God didn't take that from us. He made us that way so that we would glorify him. May all of us stop and look at our life. Examine those things where we have disobeyed. Examine those things where we may have made a name for ourselves. Examine those times when we just simply put our arm off to God and say, I'm not interested. I want the power of God, but I don't actually want God. Instead, stop, cry out to him and embrace him. Let me pray for us. Lord, as the worship band comes up and, um, we just simply reflect on your truth and on your word. And once again, as a story of, of you intervening on our behalf for our good, I would ask that, that for each of us who hear this story speaks to us, this, this scripture talks to us and pulls at my heartstrings, Lord, that you would draw each of us closer to you. And that, Lord, some of us have some some confession to make. Some of us have some ability to step forward and to say, God, I do want to glorify you with the talents you've given me, with the the gifts you've given me, with the, the intelligence you've given me, the abilities you've given me. Lord, the life you've given me. Lord, that all of us would be at a point where we would stop and let you reach into our lives. You made us fearfully. You made us wonderfully. And Lord, from this whole story that we would might just remember that our goal would be to glorify you. And we ask these things in your name.